We would like to welcome you this morning to Abundant Life Ministries as Pastor Stuart Guthrie brings a message from God's Word. We hope it challenges, encourages, and strengthens your walk with the Lord. Father God, we do thank you for your love and for your mercy and for your grace. God, given us something we don't deserve, and that's salvation. Father, the Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. That includes every single person here today. God, we are not righteous and we cannot stand before a holy and perfect God. But because of your love for us, you sent Jesus Christ. And that is grace. And Father, we can stand in any circumstance in our lives, any situation, with any illness, with anything in our lives, God, and live off of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that one day will come when there will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more suffering. No more financial struggles. No more marriage difficulties. No more problems with our children. God, there will come a time when we will stand face to face to you and we will be completely glorified. And we thank you for the grace that's been brought about in Christ Jesus. Lord, I just pray this morning as we open your word that you would be glorified, that you would fill me with your spirit that you would be honored, and we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Galatians, but I, you know, if you get to know me long enough, I like to twist and turn a little bit, and so blessed is he who is flexible, for he shall bend and not break. We're going to change directions, and we're going we're gonna to look at a seven-part series called The Seven Seas of History. Now, many of you maybe have heard of this. It's It was a series put out by Answers in Genesis in which they outlined the Bible from beginning to end. And I think it's something that we need to address uh, on a yearly basis and be reminded of those key terms, those seven events, major events from beginning to end. So it will take us about 13 weeks to get through from beginning to end. The seven C's which I'm talking about this morning are right here. The first C is creation. We deal with creation, we deal with corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, and then the consummation. Today we will start with creations, and we'll be looking at the book of Genesis beginning with chapter 1. So today there there are many, I want you to understand, who claim that there are issues with the biblical creation account. And they feel as if they need to come up with some type of theory, their own ideas of of how that took place. And many buy into those types of of theories without taking into consideration the implications that they cause. And so we have scholars, we have Christians, we have professors, we have pastors, and many others who disagree with what we would call the biblical creation account. And so we have all kinds of different theories. We have theories called the young earth, theories called the old earth, the gap theory, day-age theory, the progressive theory, and intellectual design theory. But those are just what they are all called. They are theories. Now, I don't know about you, but as I personally study the Word of God, I want to know directly what the Bible teaches me about the biblical creation account. And even if I don't understand it completely, and even if it doesn't make sense to me of how this, the age of this earth can seem to be older than what the biblical account allows it to be, I want to know what the Bible teaches. God doesn't call me and you to prove this, but He does call us to accept what's in His Word. He calls us to look and to Look at His Word and to teach its truths and its unchanging realities. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Genesis and the creation account and how all that works together. And my hope is that we can have a better understanding and be sure that God's Word is completely sufficient in itself to tell us about what happened there in creation. And we need to rely on that. And so this morning, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Genesis Chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible. Genesis, I want you to know, is the root of what the rest of Scripture is connected to. 
It's the reason why, by no surprise, that it's the number one most challenged book of the Bible. And the reality is, is if you can discredit Genesis 1-1, you can discredit the rest of the Bible. And so it's no wonder it's the number one most attacked book that exists. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And so here we see in this book of Genesis, we see a beginning of creation. We see a beginning of the human race. We, we begin to see the different races that are brought about. We see the beginning of languages. We begin to see the, the beginning of sin and beginning of murder and the progress of redemption. We begin to see the beginning choice of God choosing Israel as His special people in which He was going to bring about Messiah through. It's the book of beginnings. The authorship of Genesis, I want you to understand this morning, is Moses. Now, you'll find that even this has been challenged over the years and put under attack. And really, many are just trying to disprove the fact that, that Moses wrote Genesis. And again, here is, I believe it's the work of the evil when trying to distort the purpose and the work of Scripture. If we simply just let Scripture interpret Scripture, if you've not been with us in Sunday school, we would love for you to be there. It's a great time to gather, to fellowship with one another. But we're talking about this book and how we got it and how we obtained the 66 books and how we can rely on and how Jesus and those in the, the Scriptures relied on Scripture and how Scripture and how we understand it is by letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And so if we just allow Scripture to interpret itself, if we look at, at Exodus chapter 24, we see that, that Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. It says here in Deuteronomy 31, verse 24, it says, It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were completed. God has credited Moses not to simply be a man that would bring about those out of exile, but He called him to write the books of the law. And what did Jesus think? about who wrote the books of the law. Well, Jesus refers to Moses as have written the book of the law. Now, this may be a bit confusing to you. What do I mean when I say the book of the law? In our culture, that can be confusing, but in that day, there would be no doubt in which they were talking about. He's talking about the first five books of the Bible. That would be the Mosaic Law, the Pentateuch. And so there would be no confusion there. And so Jesus himself refers to Moses being the author. So why do we challenge it? Well, because we want to distort it. How about Luke? In Acts, he accredits, he accredits Moses as the author. How about the Apostle Paul as he quotes Leviticus? He quotes and credits Moses as the author. Listen, the fact is that many people are trying to disprove the authorship of Genesis. And that would be to just, just discredit Jesus. It would be discredit Luke and also Paul and all of the others, the Scriptures. Because Jesus can't say, hey, Moses wrote the book of the law. If he didn't write the book of the law, that would make Jesus out to be a liar. Now, there's this hypothenuse called the documentary hypothenuse theory, the JEPD. Now you may say, dude, that's a lot. Well, let me tell you what, guys. When you get into a secular university, young people... You're going to learn about these things. And they're going to teach you, and they're going to teach you that there is no possible way that the creation account that we find in this book can be accurate and true. And so again, they come up with these theories and these hypotheses. And so which you guys will face in the secular universities. And they're trying to discredit a literal translation of Genesis. And they want to do away with the miracles of the Bible and the reliability of the Bible. Listen, I want you to understand that for the last 1,850 years of church history, there's been no question taught that Moses wrote the Bible. This is new stuff. And the truth is, if it's new, it's not true. And so it's a tool of the devil to discredit God's Word. And Matthew says, hey, listen, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This book is attacked and we need to continue to study these attacks and be ready to give an account because the reality is these things are difficult. You will be challenged in your walk, in your faith, in your belief of a literal translation of the Bible. 
if you stand up for your faith. If you don't stand up for your faith, if you don't tell people about Christ, don't worry, you won't be persecuted, you won't be challenged, and none of these things will ever come about. But one day when God matures us in our sanctification, He grows us and we begin to desire to share our hope and our faith with people. And about this Bible, we'll be challenged. And then and then you will understand how important it is to try to understand these things even when we don't realize, hey, they're not that big of a deal in our lives right now. And so let us look at try to understand Genesis as a whole book because this will help us understand the next few weeks a little better. So I've divided up Genesis into two major parts. The first major part that we'll look at is the historical part. The second is the biographical part. The historical section is chapters 1 to 11. And the biographical section is chapter 12 to chapter 50. Okay, and so the historical uh, section consists of creation in chapters 1 and 2. It deals with corruption in chapter 3. It deals with the catastrophe in chapters 6 to 19. It deals with confusion in chapters 10 and 11. That's what we call the historical section. And the biographical section consists of a few different people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham we see in chapters 12 to 25 as the father of all nations, the nations of Israel. Isaac we see in chapters 26 and 27, whom laid his, who had his sons Jacob and Esau with his wife Rebekah. Then we see in chapters 28 to 36 a man by the name of Jacob. I mean, yeah, Jacob, who has a son by the name of Isaac, which forms the twelve tribes of Israel. And then we see Joseph, who can be considered a picture of Christ, a protector of Christ. And this gives us a little better understanding of the book of Genesis. And so I'd like to give you three points I think will help us this morning as we go through these chapters. The first point I want us to see is that God created for a period of time. Second thing we're going to look at is that God created for a purpose of order. And thirdly, God created... For a perfect partner. Now I'm not going to read all of these chapters containing these scriptures because I'd be here for all day. But I would like to touch base on a few. And so let us begin by looking at Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 to 5 and then we're going to look at verse 31. Let us read. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. And then if we shoot over to verse 31, it says, God saw all that He had made, day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. God saw all that He had made, and behold... It was very good. And there was evening. There was morning. And the sixth day. So we see that God, listen, created for a period of time. Verse 1 simply steps right out and says, In the beginning. Moses doesn't need, and he doesn't see the need to, to explain who God is. He just goes right into it. He simply presents Him as God. <clears throat> and sometimes, I really think that too often, we in our walks, we try to prove God to people. God is existence. He's there. Whether you're agnostic, whether you're an atheist, God exists, and the Bible says you know that He exists. And so sometimes I feel like when we witness to people, we try to prove God to people, and we're not called to prove God to people. We're, we're called to give an account for the hope that's within us. Now, we should be ready to defend our faith, but we don't have to prove God. And neither does Moses. He simply says, in the beginning, that is where he starts. People can claim to be atheists. People can claim to be agnostics when the truth is that the Bible says here in Romans 1, 18 and 19, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodlessness wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, 
because God made it plain to them. You see what it's saying here is that everybody in this world sees that existence of a God. God has made it known to them that He is. But, notice what it says here in Romans, that these men who suppress the truth, they put the truth behind them because of their their lifestyles, their sin. They don't want to have to submit to a holy God. And even in Psalm 14, 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, is what it says. And here in Hebrews, you could find it, you could be saying this, The fool who has said in his heart, No God. Now, what's the difference? Well, there is a big difference. Because of the fact that when we understand that in its original tent, they understood that there was a God. But even in their understanding that there was a God, they turned away from the truth and they said, No God. No, there's not a God. But deep down inside, they knew there was a God. And to admit a holy and righteous God would be to call one to humility and call one to authority. The old saying is that this, that sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. Verse 1 says that it's God that created. Now here the Hebrew word that's used for created is bara. It simply means to make something out of nothing. Now, God is the only one who can make something out of nothing. Only God Himself. Now you and I, we could, we could save up our money which in our culture today, we'd have to save up a lot of money if we were going to build a house on the river. But we could build a house, but what do we have to do when we build a house? We have to use materials that exist. Well, when God creates, when He barahs, He does something out of nothing. We can do nothing without something that exists. My wife can cook some great macaroni and cheese. And and I even go as far as to say she can create good macaroni and cheese, but she can't barah it. She's got to have those noodles and that cheese and and those eggs and all that crock pot to make it work. She just can't create something from nothing. Only a sovereign God can barar something into existence. And so God is all-powerful. And the truth be known is that He, in the beginning, created. Here we see a beginning. Now that should make us think because being that it says there's a beginning suggests there's what? An end. That wasn't a trick question. Being that there's a beginning suggests that there is an end. All things will come to an end. At least on this earth. In its own timing. And as well, no one knows that time or that day. But I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you realize He's coming? You see, we have Genesis... The creation, the beginning, and we have Revelation warning us that He's coming back again. This morning I want you to understand that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've never put your faith 100% in Christ, I'm not talking about 99% in Christ and 1% in Stuart. Jesus is coming back and on that day it will not be good. And so we have God in the beginning creating the heavens and the earth. Something out of nothing. And this creation, I want you to see, is done in six days. Six days of creation. God began to work His power. And there is no one to help Him. There's no one to tell Him what it's supposed to look like. He determines those things because He is the one who creates it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not an artist. But as I sit down sometimes to jot and and draw a picture... It's difficult to create something in your mind. You ever notice that? You ever sat down and tried to create something? Now, kids are very creative. Kids can come up with some ugly stuff. But to them, they created it, and it's beautiful because they created it the way it should look. And see, God created this earth and the people in His image, and He created it perfectly. You know, my daughter is turning 10, this week, and we told her that when she turned 10, she could get her ears pierced. We wanted her to be old enough to make her own decision, and she said she wanted them. I told her it was going to hurt when they stick a hole in your ear. Honey, you sure you want one of those things? And she said, yeah, I want one. Listen, she came on with those earrings in, and they played makeup, and they put on makeup on their face, and I 
And I told her, I, she, she came to me excited and beautiful. And I said, honey, let me tell you what. All that stuff, all these things, they, they're cute, honey. But God created you perfectly, just the way he made you. Minus all of the makeup. The culture sells you makeup. Honey, why do you want to wear makeup? Daddy, because everybody else does. If everybody's jumping off a bridge, honey, I mean, you're going to do it? Well, no. Well, God made you perfect. Now, ain't nothing wrong with makeup, okay? Some people need makeup. Sometimes I need makeup, all right? Okay? If I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, look, look, look at a little girl back there. Go, oh, my goodness, no, he didn't. <laughs> God created. And he made something from nothing, and it was perfect. And I'm way out of my notes. I don't know where that came from, but anyways, we went on a little rabbit trail. But there's something here I want to bring to your attention. Something that... I can't understand how other theories come about when this exists in our Bible. I want you to look and understand that every day that God created something, every day that He barraged something, every day that He brought something in existence, we see a period of time. Now the question is, is how long were those periods of times? Well, Pastor, why does it really matter how long it really took? Well... Let me explain to you why it really matters and why I really want you to grasp this this morning. Because if I can make you doubt the first book of the Bible, I ain't going to have a problem making you doubt the rest of the book of the Bible. Listen, God's Word is sufficient if we just read it and take it for what it says. And the world around you is going to want to contradict that. God had results in His creation. And not only in His success in making something out of nothing... But there when he ends his creation, he says, there was evening and there was morning. And then listen to what it says. There was a day. Now people will argue with you that that day could be a long period of time. Have you ever heard that? Has anybody ever heard this argument about these different creations accounts? Okay, well just give it some time and you're studying and your walk with the Lord... You will be challenged on this. There, there will be people who will say, Oh, well, the day really is not like 24 hours. It's like a thousand years because one day to the Lord is like a thousand years. You ever anybody say that? Well, that's bad hermeneutics. That's taking a passage out of context. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. The day-age theory will... People will explain a day of creation where they were extended days. So they would say, Well, He created... But it wasn't just 24 hours. It may have been an extended day for 24 years or 25 years. Uh, they will do this to try to understand science and Scripture together. Uh, the people that wish to hold a gap theory, they will teach there were long periods of time between verses 1 and 2. And so here in verse 1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then they'll say, well, hold on, right there. There was this long period of time. Well, does the text say that? Does, does the text say that? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Do we, do we hear it say there's a gap there? What do we call that Sunday school class when we read into the text? Anybody remember? Eisegesis. Eisegesis is reading something into the text that does not exist, that the author didn't intend for us to get. When we read Scripture, we what? We're supposed to do what kind of hermeneutics? Exegesis. To read out of what is in the Scripture. And when I read it, it says in the beginning was, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. That's what we know. So when we read the Bible based off of what we know, that's how we settle on it. And so, here we see that in verse 5, for example, we see the English word for day. Okay? Let's look there at verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. You know what that word day in Hebrew means? Yom. Okay? It means yom. Um, in your mind and in my mind, when we read that one day, what, is it, what does it sound like to you? A 24-hour day. Why would we consider it anything else? Well... 
The problem is, that leaves, if that's true, if one day is 24 hours, that leaves our earth being how old? About 6,000 years old. How does that fit into science? Because, I, a matter of fact, me and my kids were, I got home last night, and we were watching some kind of uh, whale movie, like Killer Whales or something, you know, where they, yeah, it's fun. And the, and the guy said that these whales have been in the water millions of years before trees ever existed. Where does he get that from? See, we, we all have the same evidence. Would you not agree? Scientists have the same evidence as we as Christians have. The difference is, is we look at what? We have a different starting point than they do. This is our starting point. Everything we look at, we look through the lens of Scripture. Imagine if these were like this, okay? And this is how we look. So everything we see, we look through the lens of Scripture. And so, people don't really like the idea that Christians say the world, the earth, is only 6,000 years old because it messes up all of their scientist theories. They say they have proof that the earth is millions of years, if not billions of years. Now, let me ask you a question. If I came up here and told you, if I, if I had that many fingers, and I said, you know what, I, I think you could guess the right number. If I said, guess on a scale from... One to five. And I had one hand. And I said, what number is it that I hold up? You, you feel pretty confident that you get one out of five chance, right? To guess that number. But now, get, what if I said, all right, this morning, I want you to pick a number between one million and one billion. What's the chances of you getting that number right? You might as well figure you ain't going to get it right. Well, listen, if the earth could be a million... Or a billion. Why don't we just say, maybe it exists. Because that's about as logical as it is when we look at amount of years. Saying a million or a billion. That, that, that doesn't help me, okay? When I'm trying to understand how old the earth is. And so we, we as Christians believe that if it's a literal 24 hour day, which I believe it is. Then the earth is only about 6,000 years old. And so, there are some major aging errors within the scientist's realm. Someone is wrong. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really have a problem holding the idea that God created the earth in six days. Because the reality is this. Is if God exists, which I believe He does, and He created a mountain, a river, a house, a person, a human being, He could create a, a world in six minutes, six hours, or six days. It wouldn't make a difference. So why don't we want to take Him at His word? The reason we don't is because we want to discredit the Bible. And what we want to do is we want to read science into the Word of God instead of putting this over science. We put science over the Word of God and say, well, if science has got to be right, because it's going to be a million or a billion. When the Bible says, no, it was one day, two days. Now, I think it's pretty straightforward from God's Word on what God means. He doesn't... Let us slip through and understand things like that when He gives us. Uh, the gap theory, folks, you, you know, you really, if you believe that, you really have to pump a lot of allegory into the text to get that out of that. And the folks that hold a day-age theory, I'm just going to tell you too, you have to jump through a bunch of hoops and add a bunch to the text to get that theory. Listen, why do we need to explain why the earth looks so old? You know, I don't know why it looks old. Maybe because God made it that way. God can do it. He can just make things old if He wants. He's God. And so, I understand that the word for yom, day in English, has many different usages in the Bible. But this is where, it's gonna, this is where it should click for us all. Okay? This is where it should start to make sense to us and why it's such a big deal. It can mean, listen, the word yom can mean daylight. It can mean an infant period of time. You see where the problem is? It can mean an exclusive period of time, like a 24-hour day. And really, we do this often in ourselves. We say, well, you know, back in the day, I used to be slim and trim. Now, what am I talking about when I say back in the day? Was I talking about back in the day in a 24-hour period of time? Or was I talking about a long period of time, like from when I was like 
13 to like, you know, I'm still slim and trim, so 36. Now, some people want to go back in the day so they can be slim and trim and young and smoking again. But we're created in the image of God, so all of us are young and hot still. But 99.9% of the time when the word yom is used with a number in front of it, it refers to a 24-hour day. So Genesis 34, 25 says, on the third day. Okay? It's got a number in front of it. So therefore, 99% of the time in the Bible, when we see a number in front of the yom, it means a 24-hour day. So day three means the third 24-hour literal day. Genesis 27, 45 says, Why should I be bereaved of both of you in one day? Now, why, don't, why are we questioning that? That's one day he's talking about. One 24-hour day. Exodus 10.22 says, So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was a thick darkness in the land of Egypt for three days. There we see a number in front of the word Yom again. And then here in Exodus 16.5, it says, On the sixth day, there we see a number again. Every one of those are, are not questionable. They're 24-hour days. Listen, no one's fighting the fact that Jonah was in the body of the well for three 24-hour days. They're not saying that, well, to the Lord, a day is a thousand years. Well, was Jonah in the belly of a fish for 3,000 years? Of course not. He was there for three days. Nobody's arguing the fact that these things that we just listed, these verses, are different. Why? Because when we, when we mess up the creation account, when we say, oh, it's, it's not a literal day, then we can deliteralize the Bible. We can make it mean what we want. God wasn't surprised, though, I want you to understand. He knows all things, and I believe, honestly believe, that's why He put this in here, to make these points in verses 5. It says what in verse 5 there at the end? There was evening, and there was morning, one day. Uh, verse 8 says, there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Verse 13 says, there was evening and there was morning, a third day. Verse 19 said, there was evening, there was morning, a fourth day. Verse 23 says, there was evening and there was morning, and a fifth day. And then in verse 31, we see there was evening and there was morning, and then the sixth day. You see what God's doing is He's saying, all right, the first one wasn't good enough. The second one wasn't good enough. The third one wasn't good enough. Let's just keep going on and on and on and keep repeating the same thing so that we can be certain and sure that it's foolproof. God knew that this would be, be attacked. And He's building this defense mechanism, this defense system, so that you can stand against those that refute. The idea of Yom can be more than one 24-hour day when it's followed by number. And I believe it would be taken out of context. And so you want, to, you want to argue that? Well, consider this, that not once, not one time, is the word yom used with a number that is not referring to a literal 24-hour day outside of Genesis 1. So we have Genesis 1, look here. First page, Genesis 1. Not one time out of all these books is it ever considered less than a 24-hour day when it's, followed, when it's preceded by number. Why in the world would we change it here? Because we worship science. And there's a lot of money in science. And it's infiltrating into the school system. The science. Oh, it's a million years. Everything on television... It's a million years. No, it's 6,000 years because that's what God's Word says. Outside of Genesis 1, Yom is used with a number 359 times. 359 times. And each time it means an ordinary day. Why in the world would Genesis 1 be any different? Would you, would you agree that that doesn't make any sense? Unless we're trying to prove science is true. God, in His ability, knows all things. And foresees these issues. And then He even throws something else to help 
show us that it's true. He says, before every one of those we just read, it says, there was evening and there was morning. And it's a double stamp of approval. Because everywhere outside of Genesis, when it says evening and morning, it refers to a 24-hour solar day. So why can't we accept it? Because it's controversial? You know, the Bible's controversial. But the reality is, I believe it's true. And I believe it's complete and accurate and able to show us the truth of how things were done. There is a gap of time. If there is a gap of time, then none of this works in God's creation plan. Because in day three, God, we will see, causes the dry land to appear and brings plants and trees into existence. If there is a gap of thousands of years between each day, how is it that plants can make it without sunlight for thousands of years? Light is not given on the earth to grow plants to have the it, light is given on earth to have plants to have photosynthesis, but it's not given until day four. Birds need food, and they eat from the trees. They live in the trees because back then birds didn't eat other animals before the fall, and so the bugs they need to pollinate and all those things that need to take place in order for plants to grow. How could that be if there was a gap of thousands of years between these days? I think it's possible just to work perfectly the way God made it. Matter of fact, I think it's a lot less confusing when we just read it like it says it. But, like I said, our objective in the society is to fit the Bible into science instead of science into the Bible. Everything we evaluate in our lives should be done through the Word of God. Answers in Genesis says it this way, and I like what they say. They say, taking Genesis 1 in this way, at face value, without doubt, it says that God created the universe, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, and the animals. And for two people within six ordinary, approximately 24-hour days, being really honest, you would have to admit, that you could never get the idea of millions of years from reading this passage. Would you not agree with that? There's no way you can open this book and say, well, there's millions of years. And so there's a presupposition that we put into the Bible, which is eisegesis, to make it have a million years. Because God is infinite in power and in wisdom, there's no doubt that He could have created this universe and its content in no time at all, whether it be six seconds, six minutes, or six hours, or six days. After all, with God, the Bible says, nothing shall be impossible. God, I want you to understand, created for a period of time. And that was a six-literal-day creation. But also, secondly, God created for a purpose of order. In verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1, we see God is creating humans differently than anything else that He's created. And it says that we were created in the image of God. Here in verse 26 to 27, or 30, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let me stop there for just a second. You want proof of the Trinity Turn to the first book of the Bible. Who, 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 God said, that's what it says there, there in verse 26, right? Let us, who's us? Us is what? Plural. The plurality. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our, the plural, image, according to our likeness, plurality. And then he continues, let them rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the sky and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Then God said, Behold, I've given you everything 
plant yielding seed that's on the surface and all of the earth and every tree which yields its fruit and every beast of the earth to every bird of the sky to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. God saw all that he made and behold it was very good and it was evening and morning and it was day six. God created humans and we were the height of his creation. We were created with responsibility as a, as a human race. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his breath, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living being. We are created differently than animals. We are created different than anything else. And God created us people, and God set standards for us humans, and He gives us purpose in this life. This morning, I don't know where you're at, but maybe you're here and you feel like, ah, you know what, I really don't know my purpose in life. Well, listen, we start where we're at. If we begin in the Bible, we see we have purpose. So the question is, what is our purpose? Well, He says... Here in verse 28, what's he say? Be fruitful and multiply. You, you want to know why the, the homosexual agenda is so horrific for the human race? Is it doesn't fit into God's Word. Because last I checked, Adam and Steve can't be fruitful and multiply. That's why he created Adam and Eve. And young people, you're growing up in a nation and in a culture that will try to persuade you into buying a lie from the devil. We are called to be fruitful and multiply. And in a time in which we live, many find children as an inconvenience. And it saddens my heart. You know, as a family of five children, I hear some horrific jokes. I hear horrific jokes about me. They see me in Walmart and, and they see all my kids and this dude says, Hey man, don't you know what causes that? Well, yeah, I know what causes that. Being obedient to verse 28 of chapter 1 of Genesis is what causes that. Children are a blessing. They're not a curse. They're a gift from God. God calls us to bring forth children. And so listen, as your, as your pastor, listen, I, I want you to understand, don't joke about, about people who have one child, two children, three children, ten children, because they're a blessing. I, I am blessed because I have five children. Is it hard work? Of course. You know that when you have two. Have five, it's really hard work, but you know what? It's a blessing. Psalm 127, 4 and 5 says, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior. I'm a warrior. Okay? And I have a bow, and I have a quiver that's slapped full of chillings. And I'm working on another quiver for this side, if the Lord be willing. He says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. I like how it says one's youth, because you know what? To have five kids, you better be youth. They wear you out. But how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Listen, children are a blessing from God and we've been given a mandate as human, as, as a creation to be fruitful and multiply. Young people, listen. Guys, young boys, you've been instructed to grow up and work. Women, you've been, grow, you've been instructed to grow up and bear children. That's what you're created for. Don't let the world tell you it's a bad thing. It's an awesome thing. Or you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. Verse tells us also to rule over the earth. So we have a responsibility to what? Rule over the earth. We're called to be good stewards of what God has us over. And so we need to manage everything that moves upon the face of the earth. Now, you know, there's organizations out there like PETA that 
talk about, you know, eating plants. Well, listen, after the fall of man, we were instructed to eat animals. And so while PETA's doing their job, I just come up with this analogy. It's PETA means people eating tasty animals. And so we are to not do that in an unworthy manner either. We're to maintain those things. Could you imagine if we didn't take out animals? I mean, how many accidents would be if there? Nobody shot a deer in South Carolina? My goodness. We can't stop hitting them now. And I done shot three this year. My point is, is we've been called to maintain these things. But in this context, right? They didn't eat animals, right? And so they were to maintain and to run and to operate, to function these animals and to take care of them. And we're to do the same. Even though we eat animals today, we're still to maintain and take care of them. And that means maintaining herds. And that means taking care of animals. You know, I mean, we had a, you know, some of the people, they run dogs. And it just drives me crazy. Them dogs there run up to your house. They'd be all skinny and look like bones. And we don't call them. We just feed them. They stay at the house. We've got one sleeping on the front porch right now. We're called to take care of animals. I'm not a big animal lover, but if I have an animal, I have a responsibility to take care of the animal, and so do you. Genesis 20, or 2, verse 20 says, we, 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 well, we see that Adam there names all the animals. Listen, I had a hard enough time naming five kids. You imagine naming all the animals on the earth? That dude was a smart dude. But for Adam, the Lord says it was not a helper found suitable for him. So we see that God in His creation creates in different ways. We've seen God create for a period of time. We see God create for a purpose of order. But lastly, I want us to see that God created for a perfect partner. God created for a perfect partner. Verse 21 to 25 reads this, So the Lord God caused man to fall to a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Not woe man, woman. For she is taken out of man. For this reason man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked. and They felt no shame. You see, God is still creating Even in the human race. He's made man and woman and fashioned them together. To what? To become one. Verse 22, we see God brought about this woman to man. She was taken out of man. Young people, listen. Some of you are so crazy about trying to find a partner, you fail to let God bring them to you. Here we see God bringing the woman to man. He didn't have to go chase down a woman. She came on God's time frame. Verse 24, we we have the process of what happens when two become one in marriage. It says, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Sometimes in life we have these young people who want to get married and and they, 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 they don't have the responsibility. They don't need to get married yet. Everyone that's thinking about getting married, listen, I think you need to follow this order before you decide to get married and, and fall under some responsibility of leaving and taking care of your family. Now, you know, I live with my in-laws right now. Is that a bad thing? I mean, I was called to leave my father and mother, but I, I ain't living in my daddy's house. I'm living in my mom-in-law's house, right? So I'm good. The point is, is we have to have responsibilities, people, before we step into marriage. 
and we see these young people running out, running off, trying to get married, trying to do their own thing when they're not ready. And we need to give them godly counsel. It says they shall become one flesh. Now listen, what I'm fixing to say, I want you to understand for some of you it's going to be hard. But listen closely to what I'm saying because there are young people in this room Though in spite of our mistakes as adults, we don't want them to make the same mistakes. So don't take what I'm saying as, as me lashing out against you. It's a warning to the young people for their future when they decide it's time to get married. It says the two shall become one flesh. Listen, God created Adam with a perfect partner and they became one flesh. In a society that is rampant with divorce, we need to have ears to hear, especially the young people this morning. Listen to a few passages that I wrote down. Young people, old people, and even myself. Because I'm not above of of any failure, just like anybody. But listen to what Scripture talks about here. Luke 16, 18 says this, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. The man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Mark 10, 11 to 12, he answers, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. If she marries a husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 7, 10 to 11 says this, To the married, I give this command, not I... Paul, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she's to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. (coughs) There in that same chapter, verse 39 says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies... She is free to remarry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Who in here would say that Scripture teaches the Bible thinks pretty highly of marriage? It does. It thinks extremely high of marriage. And young people, we need to enter into this marriage relationship with these things in mind. Because, listen, I want you to understand, when you put this ring on your hand and and you got your ideas of this perfect life with this perfect woman, that you're going to get everything you need and she's going to serve you and she's going to be perfect. And woman, you're going to look at your man and you're going to think, I got the best man in the world. He's the, the greatest thing next to sliced butter. He's going to do everything perfect. Listen. You're being lied to. You're marrying a sinner. And both of you are sinners. And marriage is difficult. It's hard. It's not easy. But listen, when we see these commands in Scripture that says, do not divorce, we need to take them serious. It's not a joke. God hates divorce, is what the Bible says. Don't get tied up this morning, this evening, this week, this year with the wrong person. Because we need to make sure that they belong to the Lord, first of all. As we're Christians, they should be Christians. You know, these young people dating unbelievers, they're just flirting with fire. And they're going to get burnt. And the next thing you know, we're going to have a couple in the church that's unequally yoked. And let me tell you what, it's devastating to the home. When one person is a follower of Jesus Christ and another is not, it is the most difficult lifestyle we could see in the church. And we see it every day. Now listen, I'm here to tell you that God is a God of grace. Isn't that what we sang about this morning? God is a God of hope. God is a God of mercy. And I believe He can bring those unfaithful partners that you're with maybe this morning. You're married to an unbeliever. He can bring them the faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to get on our knees and pray for them. But listen, young people, if you're not married this morning, heed the warning. Don't get caught up with an unbeliever. You just go talk to somebody who's a Christian. You go sit through a meeting with someone that's struggling with an unbelieving spouse. You won't want nothing to do with it. 
Because despite the massive failure rate of marriages today, Scripture, I want you to understand, says God hates divorce. God intends for the two people that become married to become one flesh. And that doesn't change. He created perfect partner for Adam. And the Lord had a perfect partner for you as well this morning. If you're unmarried, He's got a perfect partner out there for you. Don't rush it. Be patient. Pray about it. Get godly counsel from someone that's been successful in their marriages. I got these statistics from the internet. Over, over the past 40 years or a 40-year period, 67% of marriages terminate in divorce. Now listen, that number is the same in the church as it is outside the church. Okay? And I'm not here to condemn you if you've been divorced. That's not my, that's not my purpose. I have families divorced. My parents were divorced when I was a kid. And God has, has blessed my father with a wonderful wife who serves him and who takes care of him. And, and my mother, she's remarried. I'm not here to condemn you if you're divorced. That's not my objective. I want you to understand God loves you and God is a God of mercy and God is a God of grace. But the reality is are the statistics are there in the church and out of the church, and the young people need to understand that the success rate of you tying the knot is 67% chance you will fail. Why do you think that is? Because we're not following the commands of Scripture. 50% of these divorces take place within the first seven years. Every year, more than one million children are affected by divorce. Every year, there are one million children affected by divorce. But listen, here's a funny statistic. If you make a half a million dollars a year, your success rate is 30% higher. What's that tell you? We live in a culture that's all about the, the, the money, right? It's a whole lot easier to deal with somebody who got plenty of money. But listen, most of us ain't got half a million dollars. Most of us are going to stand before a woman or a man in marriage that is a sinner that struggles with things just like you and I. And we have to be forgiven. And we have to love one another and show the grace of God as He's shown us grace. If you're here this morning and you're divorced, I want you to understand there's forgiveness in that. But it will take us those who had been divorced come into grips with the reality that it was sin and asking forgiveness, and God can wipe your slate clean. Now, if you're here this morning, you're divorced and you're remarried, you can't unscramble eggs. God wants you to stay where you're at and represent Him in the manner you're in. God created, He spoke things into existence for a purpose, and we've been given order. And we need to live by the book of the law. We need to live by the book, the whole Bible, the whole 66 book Bible. Not one less, not one more. And when it makes no sense, we still live by it. Even when it doesn't, we do it. Don't conform to the world. Be transformed by the word. By the world, but be transformed by the word of God. God created you to have that intimate fellowship with Him. And He's revealed Himself in His Word by His mighty power in which we see in Genesis chapter 1 and throughout the rest of Scripture. As God separates the waters in Genesis 1, it's been said that, that, that water is 773 times heavier than air. When that separation took place, it would have been about 54 trillion tons. That's the power that God has. God created each of us in His own image. For His glory. For His honor. And to think that God would have created you and me to have an intimate fellowship with Him is mind-boggling. You know, I was sitting by the fire the other night. My father-in-law and we were looking up in the sky and we were admiring the creation in which God made. 
And we just looked and gazed into the stars. And we realized, oh, how finite we are as people. Yet God, God loved us and sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Here we see in 1 John 4.10, He says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that word, carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction. You see, before we were separated from God, we're at intimacy with God, we're His enemy. Even though He loves us, He sees us as sinful, separated and stained. But He sent His Son because He loved us. He sent His Son to be the propitiation. It involves this word, the appeasing of God's wrath and being reconciled to Him who loves us. And it's through the cross that Jesus Christ becomes our propitiation. Taking the wrath of God upon Himself that you and I, that we might have life, that we might be seen by God as holy and righteous and perfect. I want to ask you this morning, in the midst of a Creator who created this world in six literal days have you put your faith in Jesus Christ the one he sent to intercede on your behalf to take your sins upon himself call out to him this morning if you would ask God to forgive you of all the sin that you've committed and repent and turn to God and believe in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ we worship a God that's a creator an amazing God. And we, we have a word from God that's infallible, that's perfect, that needs no help from science or any secular university. And we need to trust in the very words in which God has given us in His Holy Scriptures. Let's pray.